Good morning. Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. Thank you to Jennifer and Steve for doing music. Maybe I'll notice a lot of wasps in town this week. Uh, I was reading this morning, and I'll be the first to admit, there's lots of things that I don't know. And I'm not ashamed of that. Because um, obviously bees make honey. And I was like, well, what do wasps and hornets do? And so I was looking at an article, and I learned, and I just told this to Carrie, and she looked at me like, how did you not know that? Um, so you, you guys probably all know it, but that a yellow jacket and a honeybee are different. I thought they were the same thing. Um, that's worse. That might be worse than a few years ago when I learned that a pony was not just a baby horse. But, um, but we're always learning things. Um, also, I want to mention again, baptisms June 5th. If you've never been baptized and you're a Christian, please talk to me. Uh, also, I, I know we have some, some students who want to get baptized, which is, which is great. Uh, so parents, definitely have a conversation with your kids. And if they're interested, I'm happy to talk to them. Um, we would like to talk to everybody who wants to get baptized before June 5th. Um, nothing super formal, but just to have a, a brief conversation with them. And... Um, so yeah, we're excited to do that, and I know we've got a few baptisms we're looking at for that day, and uh, it'll be a great day for this church. Um, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked were... Sorry, I was thinking about the bee thing. <laughs> I'll, start, I'll start over. On the evening of the first day, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked... Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we know as farmers all over the area have been hard at work these past several days. Lord, we're thankful, first of all, for good weather to be able to be out in the fields. Lord, and we continue to pray for farmers. We pray for, for a fruitful harvest. We pray for planting. We pray for their safety during planting. Lord, and we pray for the crops that they're putting into the ground, Lord, both for them and also for the people who receive those, either for animal feed or consumption or other purposes it's being used for. Lord, we pray for a good harvest for this year, and we lift that up to you. Lord, we pray for all of our farmers, again, for, for their safety as they continue planting. And um, Lord, we, we pray for our time today as we study in your word. Lord, we are so thankful that we have your scriptures that point us to the gospel, that point us to your son and the life that he lived, the death that he died, Lord, and the glorious resurrection that he rose again, Lord. And we talk about that today as we study in this passage. May all of us know that we have a Savior who is risen. In Jesus' name, amen. I enjoy the Olympics but it's always so striking to me to consider how fast they come and go. A city will spend years preparing for the Olympics. 
building stadiums, infrastructure, new hotels, and then in just a couple of weeks, it's all over. So much buildup that comes and goes so fast. I think about that every Christmas. The six months of the Christmas season, of hearing Christmas music, Christmas shopping, Christmas movies, Christmas cookies, it's a whole season. And I can't be the only one who on Christmas night sometimes thinks, wow, it's all over. I think of that on other big days. The day a new president is inaugurated. Sometimes we've waited four years or eight years to get to that day. And you have the inauguration day for half the country. It's an exciting day. And there's all the ceremony of that, the inauguration, signing those first bills into law, various presidential galas that the president goes to, the news coverage throughout the day, and then that first day is over. The first Easter was the most important day in human history. Last week, we saw the risen Jesus appearing before Mary Magdalene. As we resume in John 20, we're now nearing the end of that first Easter Sunday. Now, before we get into our passage, for just a moment, I want to talk about some of the events which have so far transpired on the first Easter. Easter morning begins with women discovering the empty tomb. The Gospels all mention that this was very early in the morning. John's Gospel mentions that it was still dark. Mary Magdalene then leaves the empty tomb and goes to tell the disciples. When Peter and John hear about the empty tomb, they go running to it. John sees the empty tomb, and even though he doesn't yet see the risen Jesus, John's Gospel tells us that he believed. John chapter 20, verse 8. Then the other disciple, that's referring to John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. We also know that Peter, after he saw the empty tomb, left totally mystified. Luke 24, 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Yet he had not yet seen the risen Jesus. Last week, we talked about Jesus' appearance to Mary Magdalene. She's the first person to actually witness the risen Christ. He also appears to other women at the tomb. Not recorded in John's Gospel, but Matthew talks about this in chapter 28, verses 8 through 10. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. In Luke 24, two men are walking towards a village called Emmaus when they're joined by a third man. They don't know it at the time, but the third man is the risen Jesus. They're walking and talking with Jesus, and it's getting late in the day, and so they invite him to stay with them. In ancient times, hospitality was especially important in a world where you didn't have cars or phones or easy communication or access to people. Luke 24, verses 28 to 31. So they drew near to the village for which they were going, to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he, and this is referring to Jesus, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. The two men are flabbergasted. 
Even though it's nighttime, they make their way back to Jerusalem. The information cannot wait. Verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. So the two travelers find the disciples who are together. With that, we come to John. And we'll see the resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And we're going to look at five things in this passage today. And I'll give five words that summarize these points. Peace, wounds, mission, spirit, and forgiveness. We'll elaborate more on these during the passage. The main idea of this passage is that we have a new mission because Christ is risen. And so with that, we'll go into our passage. First word, peace, and it's peace through Christ, beginning with the first part of verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, John begins by setting a new scene. It's the evening of the first day of the week, so Sunday night. You have his disciples. Thomas is not yet with them. He'll be brought in in the next scene. Judas is not with them for obvious reasons. John doesn't specifically tell us that all of the remaining disciples are present, but it's quite plausible. And there may have also been others present in the room. By the end of Jesus' life, we see that his followers extended far beyond just the 12 apostles. Either way, the disciples are locked in a room together out of fear for the Jewish leaders. They've just seen Jesus crucified. He was their high-profile leader. And if people could take Jesus down, then surely his followers would be at risk. That's the negative side of what's happening here. But you also have something very special. You have the people who love Jesus gathered together on Sunday. It prefigures the church. While the Jewish people worshipped on Saturday, as this was the day that the Lord had rested from his works in creation... The early church worshipped on Sunday because that was the day when Jesus rose from the dead. And that is a tradition that we follow to this day. And so the disciples are together on Sunday. They don't realize it, but they're at the the first church gathering. And then they see him. The second part of verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Another miracle of Jesus. He enters into a locked room. That also points to something unique about the resurrected Christ. As we will see in this passage and the next, Jesus has a physical body. He's not a ghost, but supernaturally, he's able to appear in this room. And then he speaks. Now, between the Gospels, I think of the words that Jesus says in his resurrection appearances and how they're all so simple yet so profound. To Mary, he simply says her name. In Matthew, he tells the women greetings. In Luke, Jesus says a blessing, and the travelers realize that it's Jesus. Here, Jesus says, peace be with you. Simple, but profound. Peace is another one of those churchy words that gets used so much that so often we can lose its meaning. Edward Clank in his commentary on John argues that when Jesus appears to the disciples and says, peace be with you, it's less of a greeting and it's more of a declaration. 
When we say peace or peace be with you or go in peace or any other way that we use that word, we're basically just expressing well wishes, which is fine. But when Jesus says peace to his disciples, it has the authority of the risen Lord as the one who is the true bringer of peace. Because of sin, the world is at war with God. But Jesus brings peace because he restores a relationship which had been broken. Because of sin, the world is wandering and in search of purpose and hope. But Jesus brings peace. Because of our sinful world, we are anxious and scared. But Jesus brings peace that surpasses understanding. Perhaps that is part of the reason why in all of the Apostle Paul's letters, in his greeting salutation, he says, grace and peace to you. That there is grace through Christ. And because of his grace, there is also peace through Christ. A popular tourist attraction in San Jose, California is the Winchester Mansion. Built by Sarah Winchester from 1884 until her death in 1922. Mrs. Winchester was the widow of William Winchester, whose family had founded the Winchester Firearms Company. After her husband's death, she built a vast mansion that was 24,000 square feet. For the remaining 38 years of her life, she had the mansion under almost constant construction as crews worked on this sprawling estate. The mansion has 160 bedrooms, 40 staircases, 47 fireplaces, 2,000 doors, and 10,000 windows. In today's money, she spent an estimated $70 million on constructing this incredible mansion. Being an heiress to a gun company, Mrs. Winchester was fearful of being haunted by the ghost of those who had died at the hands of the family firearms. And so she kept building and building and building. What makes the Winchester Mansion unique is not merely its size, but also the unique features that Mrs. Winchester included. Trap doors, hidden rooms. Of the 40 staircases, some of them lead to nowhere. Doors that open to nowhere. Hallways where ceilings get progressively lower as you walk through. She spent a fortune building a giant labyrinth to protect her from what she feared. We so often try to find peace and a sense of control through our own worldly pursuits, but which so often lead us to dead ends rather than peace. We make the mistake of trying to look to our own resources or talents as what will bring us peace instead of looking to the Lord who is the Prince of Peace. Only Jesus can bring true peace because only Jesus is the one who can restore a broken relationship with God. We come to our second word. It's closely related to the first. The idea is closely related to the first. Wounds. And specifically, it's the idea that Christ saves by his wounds. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This action does a couple of things. In showing his wounds, Jesus is verifying that it is really him who is in the midst of the disciples. But I think it is so much more than a simple proof of identity. The prophet Isaiah talked about the sacrificial lamb that was led to slaughter. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, he said, 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's probably one of the most well-known passages in the Old Testament. But the really striking verse is what comes next in Isaiah 53.5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It is because the lamb was pierced and crushed and chastised for our sins and iniquities that we can have peace because by his wounds we are healed. The healing is not so much a physical healing as a spiritual healing. That's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. The lamb slaughtered for our forgiveness and atonement. Jesus is the lamb who has been wounded so that we can be reconciled to God. I think of how superficial our world can be. Jesus appears to the disciples with the terrible scars of what he has endured. But it's not a source of shame. It's a source of glory that those wounds were the cost of our forgiveness. So we see the importance of the wounds of the lamb in the Old Testament. We see the risen Christ presenting his wounds here. And we see the convergence of these in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4, the Apostle John is given a vision of the throne room of heaven. In chapter 5, he's pointed to the Lamb. In heaven, John sees a scroll which is sealed, which contains God's plans for redemption and judgment for the world. But they're trying to find one who's worthy to open the scroll. Revelation 5, verses 3 and 4. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And it began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But John is given a message of hope that there is one worthy. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then John sees the lamb that was slain. Revelation 5, 6. And between the thrones and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And in this lamb that was slain, who is worthy, John sees a scene of victory and celebration. I don't have a slide for this one, but Revelation chapter 5 verses 11 through 13 says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The scars matter. His death matters. His wounds matter. If Jesus had simply lived his life and died as an old man, there would have been no redemption in that. He had to be wounded for our transgressions. He was the perfect lamb who was slain. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
We have a Savior who invites us to know true life because He is the Savior who died so that we could be reconciled to God because He is the Savior who lives. In Ephesians 2.13, it says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus showing his wounds points to the gospel. Third word, mission. And by that, I mean the mission that Christ, who is risen, has for his people in the world. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus again repeats the first words that he spoke to his disciples. Now, the word mission is not specifically in this verse, but it's in the idea that Jesus is expressing. At heart, it's similar to the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It's also noteworthy that this group of disciples had abandoned Jesus when he was arrested. No word about that here. He's bringing peace, not condemnation. And he's bringing purpose, not judgment. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. A significant theme in John's gospel is that Jesus is one who has been sent by the Father. In John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In John 5, Jesus has a prolonged explanation with the Pharisees of his relationship to God. In that passage, he makes multiple references to having been sent by God. Among them, John 5, 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Father sent the Son. The Son sends his followers. What an honor that is. That the Son of God sends his church, his people, his followers to continue his work in the world. To be his hands and feet in the world. Sometimes when we have a big life decision, we can devote a lot of time and energy to trying to figure out what it is that God wants us to do. And that's fair. But if you're a Christian and Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, regardless of where you live or what you do or who's around you, what Christ wants us to do is to serve him and his mission in the world. We so often think of missions as what missionaries do. It's what people do who live in other countries. No, missions is what all Christians are called to do. Being part of the mission of Christ in the world. Spreading the good news of the gospel throughout the world. I was talking to my sister this week. She said that Jehovah's Witnesses had stopped by their house. Now, I don't know if there's a lot of them in this part of Illinois, but in some parts of the country, they can be pretty notorious. Something Jehovah's Witnesses devote a lot of time to is evangelism and going to people's houses. They believe that every member of their churches is required to evangelize. So my sister told me about this and how they talked to my brother-in-law. And she said, yeah, they gave Craig a book of Mormon. I said, are you sure they weren't Mormons? (laughs) She said, I thought Jehovah's Witnesses read the book of Mormon. I said, did you know a yellow jacket and a honey bear? I didn't say that. (laughs) No, Mormons read the Book of Mormon. They also send out missionaries to do evangelism. But I tell that story because we have these groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who are generally not considered to be part of Christendom for several reasons. 
I would say most importantly, because they do not have a biblical view of the Trinity, which fundamentally changes how Christ is viewed, and as a result are so far off the mark that they are no longer preaching the gospel. They also both have illegitimate foundings. I'll save that for another time. But I talk about these groups because they're more committed to sharing their false gospel than so many Christians are to sharing the true gospel. And not just this church, but most churches. And that's a sad commentary. But my point isn't to shame, but to encourage. This is something Jesus calls us to and invites us to, to serve him. If it's an area where you struggle, let me ask you this. Why do you think it's so tough? And that's a question that I can't answer for you. For me, I think it can be tough because I often care too much about what people think about me and the opinions of others. And I don't want to seem weird, judgmental, or pushy. Maybe that's your reason too. Maybe it's a different reason. But I think it's helpful to get to the root cause of why it's a struggle because when you understand that, it can be more helpful to address the issue. There can be a million reasons why we don't talk about our faith and share the gospel. But it's what Jesus desires from all of his followers. All of his followers. All of us are meant to serve that mission. I read a quote from Grant Osborne this week. He was a professor at Trinity where I went to seminary. I never actually had him in class, but I've really appreciated his work. Passed away a couple of years ago. In his commentary on John, he says... Most of your readers feel inadequate. Not many of us are great speakers or natural-born leaders. We are not filled with charisma so that people just want to be in our presence. So what? What we are is filled with the Spirit. And that's what matters. It's not our own skill or gifts or brilliance or eloquence, but it's the God whom we serve and the power of the message that we have, the truth of the gospel. And that leads us to our fourth word, spirit. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's why the disciples are equipped, and that's why we're equipped. Because Jesus gives the Holy Spirit. Now, this verse and the next verse are both pretty hotly debated verses. Just a couple weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 2. That's Pentecost Sunday, where the Holy Spirit is first poured out on the church. That's seven weeks after the first Easter. So if the disciples receive the Holy Spirit on Easter, and then the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church seven weeks later on Pentecost Sunday, are John and Acts contradicting each other? Several interpretations have been proposed. I favor the interpretation that Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the disciples here, but that newer converts received the Spirit in Acts 2. In any event, Jesus is here endowing his disciples with his Holy Spirit, and it is through the Spirit that they and we are gifted and equipped to serve. Jesus sends the Spirit who leads us in truth. And on the first Easter, for the disciples... They would go as those led by the Spirit. In John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
We have previously talked quite a bit about the activities of the Spirit in the ministry of Christ and in the church. So I won't get into all of that this morning, but Jesus gives the Spirit. We see him again being faithful to his promises. Jesus had promised the Spirit as another helper who would lead and teach. And he fulfills that with the disciples on this first Easter. And he will fulfill that in his church on Pentecost Sunday. Fifth word, forgiveness. And it's the message of forgiveness that we're called to share. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's another verse that has caused immense debate. And to be fair, if you just give that verse a once-over, it's a challenging statement. Jesus tells the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What is he saying? It almost sounds like Jesus is giving the disciples the authority to forgive. Catholics and Protestants understand this verse very differently. The Catholic interpretation is that the apostles were given authority and they believe that that authority is also vested in the ministerial priesthood. It's the idea that priests act as emissaries of God and absolve people of sins. The Protestant belief is that God alone forgives sins, that we don't need to confess to a priest, nor do we need penance or absolution from a priest. The problem with the priestly interpretation is that it goes against just a wall of biblical texts that talk about justification being through faith alone. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have numerous passages in the New Testament which talk about Abraham being declared righteous because of his faith. We could go on and on. I would argue basically the whole books of Galatians and Romans are love letters to the doctrine of justification by faith. And also the context of John matters. Jesus is not talking about the priesthood, nor is he talking about church authority here. The risen Jesus is talking to his disciples about the mission of the church. It's not that the disciples are forgiving sins themselves. It's that they're preaching the gospel, which is a message of forgiveness. And for those who accept the message, they are forgiven. For those who reject the message, forgiveness is withheld. In other words, the response is the basis for being forgiven or forgiveness being withheld. Now, that does point to something very important about man's acceptance or rejection of the gospel. Jesus freely offers grace to all who believe, but there are those who do not believe. That person is dead in sin because we cannot save ourselves, we cannot justify ourselves, we cannot earn heaven ourselves. I think Richard Phillips gives a helpful summary. The church is authorized, therefore, not to remit sin but to tell sinners the terms on which they may know that their sins have been forgiven, or conversely, that forgiveness is withheld. In the resurrection appearance of Jesus on the first Easter, much is being communicated, but it all goes together. Jesus is the one who brings peace because he is the one who was wounded for our forgiveness. And because of the gospel, for those who believe in Jesus, 
There is a new mission in the world as we go into the world as his people, enabled by the Spirit to spread the good news of the gospel of forgiveness to the world. The mission is at the heart of this passage. On the day I married Carrie, my good friend Jordan said to me, now the work begins. He said something like that. His point was that the wedding day was not the end. It was the start of the next stage of the journey. The wedding day is important, but there's a whole new life in light of that day. On the first Easter, the risen Jesus appeared to those who loved him. And the world has been living in the aftermath of that monumental event for almost 2,000 years. But that wasn't the end of the story. It's where the next chapter began as Christ's people would continue to do his work in the world, but it would have the privilege of doing that work while being enabled to preach the good news of a risen Savior. On the eve of going to the cross, as Jesus prayed for his disciples, he also prayed for those whom his disciples would reach. John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And all of us are united to be part of that work. Christianity has such a massive influence in our nation and in our community that it can be easy to take for granted. But there are people who need the gospel. It can be easy to pass the buck and feel like someone else can do it. But there are people in your life, people with whom you have relationships, people where you know them, and where you're in a great position to be a witness to your faith and to share the love and the message of Christ. It won't always be fruitful. This passage is clear on that front, that there will be those who reject God's forgiveness. We can't control how people respond. We can't control the fruit of our ministry, but we can control our faithfulness to our ministry. And I'll close with this. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. Never a preferable place to be. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So they're in prison, singing, and a miracle happens. One of the guards is getting ready to take his own life, because he does not want to bear the consequences of a prison break happening on his watch. And Paul leads that man to Christ. Verse 30 and 31. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. It's easy to read that story and focus on Paul being in jail. But the real point is that the jailer was in a position to be exposed to the gospel. We tend to look at life and the world from an egocentric perspective. How things affect us, how people perceive us, what we want, what makes us happy, the struggles we face, the people around us. But who are we around? Whose lives are we in? Who is there where we might be in a unique position to speak gospel truth into that person's life? We have those people. And we have opportunities in talking about the struggles of life, the frustrations we face, sharing life with others the challenges that we deal with, 
to point people to the hope that we have in Christ and to the truth of the gospel because we have a Savior who lives. And that's news worth sharing. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. Lord, you are a good and gracious King. And we have a Savior who is risen, Lord, who is risen to eternal life and who promises eternal life through all who believe in him. We have an eternal Savior who gave up his life so that we could live when we believe in him. Lord, may we be a church of people who are committed to living lives dedicated to the glory of Christ and serving him. In his name we pray. Amen.